Welcome back for another episode of Commodity Conversations. My name's David and today we have Michael Whitehead, Head of Agri Insights for ANZ, chatting with Rob Herman. It's a jam-packed episode this week. Michael covers everything from the recent Australian-Indian Economic Free Trade Agreement and the opportunities this presents for Aussie producers. They also discuss everything from cattle, dairy, cotton and even, a first for Mercado, berries. As usual, if you want to read up on market movements in Australia this week, head to the market comments section on the Mercado website. That's it from me. Enjoy the episode right after a message about one of our sponsors. Today's sponsor of Commodity Conversations is Cleaver's Organic Meats. All Cleaver's products are sourced from Australian family-owned farms, where animals are raised in free-range environments, are grass-fed from start to finish, and meet the strict animal welfare requirements of the Australian Certified Organic Standard. They offer a wide range of delicious lamb, beef and chicken products. Jump on their website to learn more at www.cleaversorganics.com.au Welcome to Commodity Conversations and especially welcome to Michael Whitehead. Now, Michael, is become, you, Michael, you're almost becoming a regular on Commodity Conversations, which we're really happy about. But the reason is that as, head of, as ANZ's Head of Agribusiness and Insights, you do publish some terrific information and we all take note of it. So welcome back to Commodity Conversations, Michael. Always great to join you, Rob. Thank you. Now, let's, let's get to the, the big stuff to start with, I think. And, and it sort of led off in your Ag, Ag Insights um, publication this week, or not, not this week, it was a couple of weeks ago, but the Australia-India Economic Cooperation and Trade Agreement. It sounds terrific, but which are the agri-sectors that are most likely to benefit, Michael, from that agreement? Thanks, Rob. You're right. It, um, it did get some headlines, this agreement. And we'll, we'll call it a free trade agreement for brevity or an FTA um, because that really is what it's going to do in terms of reducing tariffs and opening up the opportunities for some of the, the big agri-exports. Before we touch on them, I suppose it's important to go back. Those of us who've been in agri for years have seen in the past how much some of these FTAs have uh, improved market access of particular products. The FTA with South Korea, for example, really increased Australia's beef access because it reduced our tariffs compared with our American competitors. Um, and the results really show out in that level of market access. Uh, similarly, with uh, whether it was free trade agreements with the ASEAN region, whether it was China, whether it was the US, other places as well. They are hard work free trade agreements. There are bureaucrats from both sides sitting down in Geneva or other places to nut out a, a lot of give and take access for some of our products um, and access for other products from the other side coming in. And nobody gets uh, everything they want out of these agreements, but they really do open up opportunities. What do they do? They reduce tariffs, so it costs less for the exporter and less for the importer, so it makes it more attractive for that product going in, and it increases your competitiveness against the other side. Rob, your, your main question was, who in particular for Australian agri-exporters does it uh, benefit? Mm. Uh, some of the ones, sheep meat particularly, um, there's looking to be a reduction on the sheep meat tariffs. Uh, there has been about a 30% tariff going into India, and there's only been a very small amount going in. People think of this giant Indian market, this sort of 1.3, 1.4 billion people as being 
largely vegetarian, but there is a very large meat eating part of that population and a part of that population that won't be eating beef or won't be eating pork. So huge opportunities if the hard work is done uh, to open up uh, the consumption of sheep meat there. And we know that the Australian sheep meat industry can do that well. Look at the increase of sheep meat into China, into the US. Well, I just want to dig in a little bit more there because you did make special mention in your report about the large Muslim community in India and also the growing middle class. Just explain why they might be important for um, the sheep and la- sheep meat industry. Absolutely. It, it differs uh, reasonably across the, the population, but to generalise, a lot of the Hindu population of India who make up the majority of the population are vegetarian. Um, and that opens up opportunities in pulses, lentils, which we'll talk about. But for the Muslim population, and let's not forget, India still has the world's largest Muslim population who are meat eaters. Um, and if there are certain meats that they won't eat, whether it's uh, whether it's cattle because of some of the particular uh, traditions there, whether it's pigs as well, that is a diet that is very open for an increase in sheep consumption. So once again, it will take work, but the Australian sheep industry has shown over the years how good it is at promoting. One of the things we need to reflect on, and and perhaps we, we oldies in ag, is to compare this in a way to what happened with the opening of the China market over the last 25 to 30 years. How much Australian agri-exports, including meat, was going in and what a small amount back there as the market started to open, how much work was done by Australia and how much is going in now, and look at replicating that with India to to really benefit the industries. You asked about some of the the other agri-exports from Australia that could Mm. be going in. Uh, We talked about wool. And absolutely, potential for, well, tariffs coming down on wool and the potential for wool processing to lift in India, uh, particularly if China starts to get challenged by high costs in China and there looks to be a a move in some of the processing operations. So opening up chances in India there as well. Uh, We talked about the plant-based protein diet that a lot of the Hindu population uh, has had for years. With the, the opportunities for lentils going in and a reduction in tariffs there, um, that's going to be cut from 30% to 15%. Faber beans, that's been cut as well. It didn't come for chickpeas. That's going to be something to be worked on. And, and that did uh, frustrate some producers. The last two major ones under this were the wine industry, which really is looking for new opportunities after the increase in tariffs by China. And and the Indian population are great wine drinkers, particularly great whiskey drinkers as well, um, but have had high import tariffs. And if the tariffs are coming way down on Australian wine going into India with that rising middle class, great opportunities there. And the last one is horticulture. Horticulture remains a, a fascinating industry globally in terms of consumption because that giant middle class that we talk about, and it's a generic phrase that we raise, but uh, uh, you you think of people who are making more money, who are looking, dare we say, to to copy in a way that that American lifestyle, becoming fitter, uh, having all the, the, the attractive things about the American lifestyle. And a big part of that is the diet becoming healthier and healthier. Horticulture is a big part of this. 
Australian horticulture is very attractive because of the way it's grown, because of the quality of it as well. So for everything from blueberries, avocados, onions, cherry, asparagus, celery, a range of them, reduced tariffs, great opportunities. Well, it's going to be something we'll watch with uh, which with real interest because um, I'm interested you raised the similarities with China opening up. So that that is certainly something to look forward to. I just want to switch gear a little bit, Michael, and talk about the cattle market. And um, we've seen a slightly cooling market. Is is your analysis telling you that with, that that's a change in sentiment, or have other things are other things driving this sort of settling down of the market a bit? Rob, you, you could arguably say that with the cattle prices having come down slightly, but with the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator still being north of a thousand cents as we come into May 2022, uh, that it's gone from seventh gear into sixth. It's mm. still going way ahead of where it was in the past. Um, what is this a sign of? We can compare this to what's been happening in sheep prices too. Arguably, it's inevitable. It was just uh, the argument just has been over the last two years as to when it was going to happen. Uh, when was it going to get to the point where the restockers who were originally driving this were going to have enough cattle having rebuilt their herds post drought uh, to get themselves to a level when on their individual operations on their farms, they were comfortable. They were comfortable to be able to continue selling enough to keep cash flow going uh, and to continue to, to get their own internal restocking processes going. Um, the rains kept falling. The rain looks like it's going to keep falling well based on current forecasts. The grass is still there, but they have got to a level where they have filled out enough. Similarly, we, we saw that whilst the price rises at the start were almost entirely or largely driven by the restockers, then the feedlotters took over. And the feedlotters were needing to build up their supplies as well as their export demand remained strong, particularly into South Korea and Japan, looking for the grain-fed side, uh, particularly as the Australian supermarkets and other big retailers were looking for the surety of finishing in the feedlots as well, and while the domestic market remains strong. So, so we are seeing that levelling out, but the fact that we haven't seen prices slide in a major way, we haven't seen them go down uh, markedly, is a very good sign. Uh, it means that the, the export uh, optimism is there. It means that the domestic optimism is there. And uh, if the rain continues to fall, it is showing that producer optimism. So absolutely no need for panic in any way at the moment. So I'm talking today on Commodity Conversations to Michael Whitehead. And Michael is a special guest of ours, and he's also the ANZ Bank's Head of Agribusiness and the key lead, I think, Michael, we can say in your Agribusiness Insights publication that comes out on a regular basis. I just want to talk about dairy. We had a really strong start to dairy. Um, things were looking really good. I know people in dairy get nervous, though, and this last sales data that came through um, would be making people a bit nervous as well. What's your take on that? Look, Rob, prices for anything, as we just talked about with cattle prices, they do go up and down. And that's one of the things we, we in Agri have to get used to. In fact, a, a, a good pub discussion is over which industry has to worry about the most volatility, whether it's, whether it's the wool growers, the, uh, the sheep meat, etc. And And dairy prices are no exception. It is interesting to look at the dairy industry. As you say, there have been some changes, whether it's in Farmgate, whether it's in the global dairy trade. Uh, 
arguably those prices are continuing to look relatively strong at the moment. Um, that uh, once again, as with all agri-commodities, that combination of the domestic demand remains strong. Um, the export demand also remains strong and export demand, one of the stories of 2022 has been what's happening with our competition and our competition in dairy being the three big players, New Zealand, Europe and the US, and they all have challenges which have increased uh, our global competitiveness. So that is remaining strong as well. Uh, China demand, look, there have been disruptions, obviously, because of some of the ongoing COVID policies there, disruptions because of Russia, but things are looking good. One of the things I, I think to look at with dairy, and, and in some of our publications, we've made that dairy and sheep comparison, is has Australian dairy and the dairy production sector got down to a level? Just as we saw sheep numbers come down from about 170 million to below 70 million over the decades, has dairy production in Australia got down to a level where those producers who are still there, by and large, are not overproducing, um, have a have a very appreciative market or a market that needs their offtake as well, um, have that uh, domestic demand that remains strong. And the ones who are still there as well, uh, who decided to stay for the long haul, uh, enthusiastic, innovative, uh, and, and looking at more opportunities. So yes, there's volatility, but arguably the signs remain good for the dairy sector. And even for those who may be sort of thinking about where their future goes or retiring or getting out of it, um, that we're now starting to see uh, arguably a resurgence of people interested in coming from outside sectors back into the dairy sector, um, running dairy operations. Whilst we've seen outside investment look at beef and grain for a while, we're seeing that open to opportunities in the dairy sector. So always a challenging sector. And those of us who aren't dairy farmers have immense respect for the work ethic and the lifestyle of dairy farmers. Um, but, but things are looking good. It's a sector which is showing some good promise. Absolutely, Michael. And it's also a sector that has innovated and created efficiencies of scale. Um, and, and, I, and I suppose we could also thank our neighbours across the ditch for introducing a lot of those uh, innovative ideas. I want to talk, talk about an industry that is really um, off the scale almost, and that's cotton. And it's interesting because we... Australia's a small player in the cotton industry, but we're a big player in the wool industry. And we often look at cotton and think, well, we'd like cotton to be going well because it's supportive for wool. But it just seems like at the moment, I think in your report, you noted it was at 11-year highs. It just Absolutely. seems like this is extraordinary in the climate that the, uh, the global markets are operating in right now. Rob, you hit the nail on the head with the word global. Um, and every farmer takes no delight whatsoever in another farmer's misfortune. But the reality of the global market is that so much of the fortunes of whether it's our export prices, our export volumes, and how that ricochets back down through the supply chain to what we plant is impacted to how global competitors are going, what it means for the demand out there. And one of the big things about the global cotton market right now is that some of the major competitors have been having a, a very bad season, particularly in Texas and in that region where so much American cotton comes from. It's been a bad season there. And as the cotton farmers in Australia know, particularly in New South Wales, in contrast, uh, those seasons uh, here have been going well for three years. So, so global supply down, 
global demand remaining very strong, particularly as consumers come out of COVID uh, and, and look to start buying more clothing again and more consumer goods and Australian production going well. So, so that Australian production side is strong. It is a, it is a very uh, good point in time at the moment for the Australian cotton industry. So we might see um, on the back of that, we could all you know, well see a record Australian planting. It, it absolutely could be the case. It, it's interesting to look at some of the forecasts for where cotton plantings will be going in Australia in the coming year and going forward. And a lot of forecasts are based on the fact, as everyone in ag gets used to, that good seasons will come and go and there will inevitably be bad seasons as well. Uh, but as we know, since the end of the drought, there have been two good seasons. And whilst uh, it, it was thought for a lot of industries that uh, this season may not be quite as good, and this accounts for the grain industry as well, late season rains have meant that some of those forecasts could well be on the upside. Uh, for grain, for example, two record crops, there was a thought it would go down this year, but we wonder with those late season rains, if a lot of producers have thought, nope, we're gonna make the most of soil moisture. And for cotton as well, could well be that point because the season's so good. I think a combination of, of, of seasonal conditions, and you mentioned soil moisture, but also attractive prices. I mean, farmers are, have, a, have a, a history of being able to respond to positive stimulus, Michael. Yep, attractive prices and an outlook for attractive prices because there is no sign at the moment that there will be a surge in production from anywhere else in the world, which is the kind of thing that normally brings prices down. It, it's interesting with prices. And once again, we've talked about some of the major issues being discussed right now. People talk about price spikes. And when we talked about cattle just before, Rob, we, we talked about the fact that, that that's gone up and it's plateaued. Price spikes, as we tend to see in, in grain, in cotton sometimes, tend to happen when things hit the top and then suddenly there's a surge in production. The market thinks there'll be a lot more of a product out there uh, and the buyers pull away because they know they won't have to pay those prices. Well, that's not necessarily looking to be the case in cotton at the moment because there is, as I said, no, no surge in production on the horizon. Now, Michael, I love reading your Ag Insights business, but I've got to be honest and say, I tend to go to the end of the report because there's always a quirky little industry that you manage to find information on and your ANZ, I'm sure your researchers uh, need full recognition for some of the hard work they do. But I want to talk about berries and uh, we've never talked about berries on, um, on commodity conversations. So just tell us a little bit about what's happening in the berry market. I note in your report that Australia exports fresh berries, but we import frozen berries, which I think is a really interesting point to start from in terms of the berry uh, story, Michael. It is a fascinating one. It, in fact, you could, uh, you could have a, a big discussion point and say that COVID in a way has been good for berries. Um, and why is that the case? Because the Australian diet was changing anyway, and it was getting healthier and more fruit and more veg. And then uh, a lot of the discussion at the start of COVID that berries and particularly blueberries were good for lifting immunity and good for lifting health when, when people were trying to avoid COVID. And so we've absolutely seen a few things. We've seen consumption go up and we've seen the Australian population and those export markets uh, buying a lot more berries. I, I'm sure a lot of people listening go into their supermarkets and, and look at the blueberries, the raspberries and the strawberries on the shelf. Uh, and add some to the breakfast as well. 
what that means also is that the savvy producer and the savvy investor as well has known that not only is this the case now, but it's going to be the case going forward, both for Australia and, as we said, those export markets, particularly those, those Asian export markets. So we've seen investment in there, growth in irrigation, uh, growth in development of infrastructure and growth in production of berries. Your point on fresh versus frozen, once again, the once again, a fascinating thing about ag, it's a product of a couple of things. It's a product of free trade agreements. If we're going to have access to some markets for our goods, we have to let other things come in. So there are those frozen berries coming in for industrial uses, whether it's morning smoothies, whether it's uh, milkshakes out and about in the retail community. Um, but the fresh berry exports we have uh, continue to see good price increases uh, and that's why the industry is continuing to grow strongly in production. Michael, we know that um, there's some big developments of berry production in Tasmania. What are the other main regions in Australia where um, the berries are, uh, are grown and where they're likely to be uh, growth in those uh, production systems in the future? Look, Berries are an interesting one for production because they, they've got a pretty broadly applicable climate, as with a lot of horticulture, where you grow them is going to be a combination, yes, of climate. Uh, worker availability is going to be a big issue, so, so where that is the case, um, and, and also where the cost of the particular land makes the, the return suitable for the investment in it. So we're seeing berries, for example, grown in every state. And whether it's on the outskirts of capital cities, where we see them outside Melbourne, outside Adelaide as well, so they are close to the market, it reduces transport costs. In terms of the broader areas, um, particularly New South Wales, um, in that sort of Coffs Harbour region, uh, a lot of berries grown up there, um, but uh, basically in every state. But uh, that's probably the main one. And you talked about Tasmania too. Really, that growth there for, for those and for other horticulture as well, cherries in particular. Now, I look at the clock, Michael, and it seems like we've, uh, we've gone over time, but it doesn't feel like it because um, it's been a fascinating conversation. You've always got um, a, a wealth of knowledge and, and the fact that you're prepared to share it with our listeners, um, we're very grateful for, Michael. So thank you very much. We look forward to talking again next time. Thanks, Robin. Thanks to everybody on the Mercado team. Thanks for tuning in from the team at Mercado. We hope you're doing well and see you next week. Music